Good morning. How's everybody doing? I'm impressed. January 1st, 9 a.m., and here you are. Sing your hearts out. Well done, everybody. You can, I'll give you permission to look with some condescension to the 1030 crowd when they come in, rubbing the sleep out of their eyes. Oh, well done. Let's open our Bibles, please, to one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 90. It's amazing how such a respected document as the Oxford English Dictionaries stays up with modern culture. Three years ago, they gave us a new word, which is called, by something I don't particularly understand, a technical term, a mass noun, and that word is FOMO. Have you heard it? What does FOMO stand for? Fear of, I'm super impressed with whoever that is way there in the back. <laughs> FOMO is an acronym, actually. It stands for fear of missing out. And you may not have known the term, but in this 21st century, I guarantee that you've experienced it. Here's the definition. FOMO, or fear of missing out, is this. Anxiety that an exciting event may currently be happening elsewhere often aroused by posts seen on social media. <laughs> now, depending on your age and your stance toward technology, that may look like you constantly looking at your smartphone, just as some of you are doing even now, hopefully at your Bible, not on Facebook. <laughs> For others, it's talk radio. For others, it's Fox News or MSNBC or whatever your media drug of choice happens to be. But we crave constant new information. We don't want ever in the 21st century to be the ones who have to say, wait, what happened? There's a continual craving to keep up. Uh, last night, a world-class entertainer had a really embarrassing moment in the New Year's show. And I, I, I have some compassion there, so I won't even mention but even as it happened, the internet was going to work, documenting it, mocking it, making jokes. Culture's always moving ever faster. We live in a trivial culture. We live in a culture that is so surrounded, overwhelmed really, by information and updates that we run a great risk of losing perspective. That's why I want to share Psalm 90 with you this morning. Look in your Bibles, Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. That's not the editors didn't put that in there. That is part of the text. Most of the Psalms that have, were given names were written by King David. This was written some 1,500 years, 14 to 1,500 years earlier, perhaps, by Moses. As far as we know, this is the only Psalm he gave us. And if you know his story, you'll be keenly interested in what Moses prays for. Moses was the deliverer 
born in Egypt, hidden from Pharaoh's wrath when Pharaoh turned against the Israelite and decreed the slaughter of all the newborn boys, miraculously saved and raised in Pharaoh's court, and then used by God to lead the famous Exodus, where Moses, a prince of Egypt, led God's people away from and out of the world's greatest superpower against an army that eventually gave chase and was destroyed by one of the great miracles in human history when God destroyed Pharaoh and his armies at the Red Sea. And then on the verge of the promised land, Moses sent spies over to spy out the land, the famous holy land or promised land that God had promised. And almost all of those spies brought back a fearful, untrusting, we can't do it report. And God told Moses the second saddest news he ever had in his life. That because that generation had not trusted him and his word, they would not personally enjoy his promise, but would die on, in the desert on the wrong side of the river. And God would keep his promise, not to them, but to their children. In other words, when you sit down with Moses and when you listen to Moses pray, he has a great deal to teach you. Have you ever learned from hearing someone's public prayer? I have. I had the rare privilege when I was still a college student of praying with a, a great old man who I think was probably at that time 90 years old. He'd, I prayed with him at a conference. It was a big missions conference, and they paired us up by twos. And I just happened through God's providence to be standing right next to him. So they said, you guys pair up and pray together. And here I am praying with someone who I've got three books on, three of his books on my shelf. Listening to him speak to his God was a spiritual banquet. It showed me that the relationship with God is more personal than I had imagined. He was speaking to God in a way that I never had for several reasons, but the main one was he simply knew him better. And I learned a great deal from listening to him pray. That's the beauty of Psalm 90. It is a prayer of Moses. Look at this title, the man of God. Moses prayed, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but turmoil, is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And let's stop listening to Moses for just a moment.
What's that psalm make you feel? Psalms are songs. My family and I just made a 1,600-mile round trip. So music was a big part of it. If you've ever driven from Southern California to El Paso, Texas, you know that you need peppy music to keep you going. <laughs> it's easy to give up hope and to despair of life. So for our road trip, we picked peppy stuff. I could not afford any somber, reflective songs. I needed energy. Now this is a song. That's what the psalms are. They are the prayers, the confessions, the calls for help, the expressions of praise and trust of Israel. From what we've read so far, how do you feel? It's sober, isn't it? It's serious. What's Moses doing here? He's telling us about God and he's telling us about ourselves. He's primarily talking to us, if I look at the length of his lyrics and what he focused on the most, he is talking about the human condition. And what he is telling us is that we are fragile. We're temporary. In other words, we're mortal. Look again at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. A watch in the night was four hours. And Moses said, God, because you are eternal, because you exist outside of time, and because you're not created, a thousand years to you is like one watchman's service, four hours during the night. It's quick. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and weathers. He's talking about us. Our lives aren't only short. Their brevity is also marked by fragility. We're easily broken. We're easily consumed. We're easily gone. I don't know if you did follow the news in your own version of FOMO, but there's been a lot of both joking and sad reflection of just how evil 2016 was to kill so many celebrities toward the end of the year. Do you see this? Well, that's just one pop culture way of dealing with what Moses is telling us here. Life is just but for a moment. And we're so good at obscuring that fact from ourselves. There's never been a group of people in, the hum in human history that are better at denial and more easily distracted with the simple, tough fact that Moses is giving us here. We're fragile and temporary and mortal. I'm more of a words guy than a music guy, but I do listen to music occasionally, and years ago I was struck by a lyric by a guitar player and singer-songwriter named John Mayer who wrote, I'm only good at being young and talks about life as a train that won't stop. That's the name of the song, Stop This Train. And it just keeps going on and going on and you would like it to stop and he says, I play with my words, not his, his are better. 
I play with the numbers to convince myself that I've only just begun. I'm only good at being young, just getting started. Moses knew better. Where did Moses get the perspective that life was so fragile and so easily turned aside that it was God himself that bid his creation to return to the dust from where he formed them? He watched a whole generation die in front of him. See, that great man, once the unfaithful, fearful report came out and God's judgment was given that the children would enter the promised land, not the men and women to whom it had originally promised, Moses got up with a grim realization that he would wander in the desert for as long as it took for the natural lives of the people he lived, he lived with and led and loved to die. Creates an awkward situation if you think about it for the oldest guy living. How you feeling today, buddy? I feel great. Not too bad. It's tough. Life is fragile. We're quickly gone. And God is nothing like us. Look up in verse 1 to how Moses began this psalm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Who is God? He's utterly unlike us. Before the ancient mountains that, were, that we admire, one of the few good things to look at as you near El Paso are the mountains. And boy, you're so, so happy to see any change in the geography. <laughs> before those ancient mountains were formed, before they existed, God simply is. He's eternal. And God says, in all of our days, in all of our generations, you've been our dwelling place. You've been our refuge. We've always been able to hide in you. And good thing, because we are so fragile and temporary and mortal, you, God, on the other hand, are eternal. And then you come to the, the most difficult part of the psalm. And if you're going to live 2017 under God's rule and follow God's plan, you have to deal with the difficult subject that Moses begins to explain in verse 7. I probably couldn't find much in the Bible that is more countercultural to life and thinking in the United States, including among Christians, than what Moses says next about this God who gives people refuge. That's true. He is a dwelling place, a fortress, a refuge for all generations, but there's more to him. Verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. When you listen to a song, you have to think about how it makes you feel and what it makes you think about. Verse 7 is talking to you about the justice of God and more specifically about the anger of God. Now, let's just be honest. We're in church. We can be honest in church, right? Church sometimes is the last, people choose to be, last place people choose to be honest, but let's try. Are you comfortable with the idea of God being angry? Just think about it for a second. 
Does God have a right to be angry? It's interesting that in our culture, and this is how our trivial culture has misshapen our thinking, in our thinking, everyone has a right to be angry except God. Have you noticed that everybody's angry? During the Christmas break, I had no phone, no internet, no TV for six days. And the dominant feeling was, can you guess? Not real anger, not not anger, but injustice. A great wrong is being done here at the end of my little (laughs) cul-de-sac. I pay good money, and I need these services. I have work to do, and more importantly, bored children to entertain. And I talked to countless customer service representatives calmly, gently explaining the injustice of all this. And they explained that it was the holidays and they couldn't necessarily deal with the injustice. And that moved me to lament rather than uh, denunciation. And everybody's got a right to be angry. Americans live in constant fear of somebody suing them. You have an accident, anybody gets hurt due to your car or in your property, you immediately, friend or foe, family member, whoever it is, you immediately think, am I about to get sued? Because we are keenly tuned to our rights and we're very quick to notice any time they've been stepped on. That's why as soon as the internet went out, I thought to myself, this isn't right. They're going to want about 150 bucks next month, and I'm being deprived of the service they promised to provide. Everybody has a right to be angry except God. Why is God angry? What arouses His justice? Look at verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Wow. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. It doesn't get any heavier than that. See, if I take God's Word seriously, that tells me that God consciously, intelligently, purposefully looks at every wicked thing that's ever in my heart and my intention, all of it. He sees it all. It's not only that it can't help but escape His notice, He has set it before Him. He is examining it. That's why the author of Hebrews many years later would say that all of creation is naked before God's sight. Everything's exposed. There are no secrets. He sees and knows it all. And can you imagine how God must feel looking at the wickedness in the human heart? What would the natural righteous reaction be to that kind of selfishness, to that kind of sin? Anger. I'm pausing here because if we're going to think biblically, we have to think carefully and biblically about God's character. God's character has been deformed by modern American thinking to this. God loves you just exactly the way you are, and here's the subtext. He has no plans on changing you. Just the way you came in, that's great. Have you noticed? 
The truth is, He does love you as you are, and He loves you too much to leave you there. Because He does see everything in your character that does not conform to His. You were made by an eternal God to love Him and to enjoy Him forever. But as Isaiah wrote after Moses, every single one of us, like sheep going astray, wandering away from the shepherd, have lost our way and wandered very far from God. Sometimes by ignorance, many times by willful choice to impose our will, our plans, our thinking, our emotions, our values on the eternal God who made them mountains and everything that lives on them and everywhere else on earth. Yes, Moses has a great deal to teach us because he saw God's justice day by day as an entire generation of people he loved and led and physically risked his life for died under God's judgment. Why? Because, as he tells us, his iniquities were before, their iniquities were before God. Their secret sins were in the light of his presence. Here's perspective on aging. Listen. All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, and even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Older folks, can I ask you a personal and obvious question? Is aging easy? No. It's exceedingly difficult. I'm just starting to edge into that where I'm starting to realize and I can no longer deny that things aren't what they used to be. You get that in the second half of your 40s. Here's Moses explaining it. The eternal God who made us to live with him and to love us has seen us deliberately walk away from Him and sin, and sin has ruined everything in the world, including our own bodies. And Moses, who died at a much greater age, looks across an entire generation and says, the, most of us are only making it to 70. The strongest people are making it all the way to 80, but they're not particularly happy about it. It's hard even those who are blessed with long life do so with great struggle and illness and injury and recovery, and everything just takes a little bit longer than it used to. Have you noticed? That's life. Oh, man, I sure am glad I got up early to come to church on January 1st. <laughs> this is massively encouraging. <laughs> Hang in there if you'll notice he's not done. But if you're going to live life as it is and not as trivial culture tells you it is, you need to deal with reality. The fundamental thing that sin and Satan want to hide from the eyes of people who are following Jesus is reality. To make them deal constantly and imagine and plan and work in a world that doesn't actually exist to live for illusion and live for vanity and to not deal with the realities, the sobering, sad, frankly depressing realities that Moses is confronting his people with here in Psalm 90 of sin 
and old age and death. Verse 11 is the most troubling two lines in the psalm. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? That's a hard verse to translate. Here's what I think it means. Moses is saying, God, you are as angry as the reverence we owe you. Let me explain that. You're driving too fast. Anybody do that? Not this sweet Christian crowd, right? But you're driving too fast, and some stranger in a Honda Civic angrily sees you speed by and makes motions to you to pull over. You laugh (laughs) and drive on. What's going to happen? Nothing. Unless he chases you down in the Civic, which is unlikely, right? Because you're in a much better car. Same scenario, you're driving too fast, and to your chagrin, you blow right by a police officer. He falls in behind you, turns on his light, and addresses you sternly over his PA, telling you to pull over. And you don't. What's going to happen? Terrible things are going to happen. You're going to be on the news. He's going to call all his friends. It's a California phenomenon. I do not understand it. I don't know why people drive away from the police. They have radios and weapons, you know, weapons to deal with you and a radio to call many more just like them until you are dealt with. Now, what's the difference? It's just two people, right? The guy in the Civic and and the police officer. What marks the difference? Why are you in trouble Why is so much hurt going to come crowding into your world because you ignored the ordinary human who happens to be in uniform in the car? What's the difference? Authority. And God has infinite, eternal, immeasurable, unfathomable authority over us. He is due every reverence. The breath you just took, that was a gift from Him. You didn't earn it, and you can't guarantee the next one. You can't. It was a choice by an eternal God to give you life and to sustain life. And in spite of all of our advancement, as much as we can do to prolong life, we can't prolong life one more moment past what God decrees. We can't. That's why Moses says earlier in the psalm, you bid man to return. From dust you came, from dust you to, from dust you were made, and to dust you will return. He's in charge. And every day, please understand, don't let this turn you away from God. Let, it, let this turn you toward Him in reverence and awe and genuine worship. Awesome is a word we've ruined. Awesome means that it inspires awe, and God should, and He does. And what Moses is laying here side by side is the profound difference between God and us. He is eternal and just, and because He simply is completely unlike us, He's the Creator and we are the created. 
His most fundamental attribute is His holiness, which is a Hebrew word which means a cut above, separate, in a whole other class. Someone joked that one of the chief differences between God and you is that God is never confused and thinks that He is you. And we think we're God on a regular basis. Right up to the presumption that we think our lives will go on for as long as we like and we'll be able to do all that we want. And Moses, from the perspective of suffering and watching a generation die, says soberly, seriously, sadly, it's not true. He's not like us. We're fragile and temporary and mortal, and He is eternal and just. And finally, He turns in verse 12 and says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's the point. You want a wise endeavor for 2017? Pray to God. What Moses prayed in verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses prayed, God, help us realize how brief, how temporary, how easily hurt, how easily destroyed we really are. Teach us to number our days. To what effect? Let's study the Bible together. What's the second line in verse 12? That we may live wisely. That we may live in reality. That we may live according to the truth. Return, O Lord, how long. Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad our days. Finally, some light breaks into this psalm. God is not only eternal, He is not only just. Verse 14 tells me He is steadfastly, faithfully, eternally loving. See, the deformation in our culture that tells us that God is love, tells us the truth when it tells us that He is love. It tells us a great lie when it tells us that that's all He is. See, He's a person. He's like you. If I didn't explain your complete character and all of your attributes, I wouldn't be talking about the real you. In modern culture, God has no right to be angry and isn't angry about anything. All of His creations, all of His little creatures, us, we may be angry and rightly so about a great number of things, but God never can be and never is and certainly never should be. Moses knew better. The eternal God who because of His great faithfulness and love in verse 1 rescues and serves to people as a refuge across all their generations, constantly sees their sin, but deals with them with steadfast love anyway. That's why this book is so big. It tells you the unfolding saga and gives you, ever, with every turning page, more and more about God's character. That God's character was so just and holy that the only way to deal with the sin that God always sees was to put His own Son on the cross and treat Him as if He were the guilty party. That's how just He is, and that's also how loving He is. 
that he would see all of my sin and put it on his son, Jesus Christ, instead to punish him the way I deserve to be punished. There's no greater love than that. But do you understand how much seeing God's justice matters? If you don't see your sin and you don't see God's justice, the sacrifice of Jesus makes no sense to you. It's unnecessary. It's overdone. It's just kind of a trivial footnote and just a random loving idea for which there was no great purpose. No, the unfolding story of Scripture tells us this is the only way to reconcile us with the God who is this holy. And Moses knew him that way as well. In spite of all of that death, Moses knows that God is not only just, he is also loving. And what do we need to live in the sight of a God like that? We need, verse 12 tells me, what do we need? Wisdom. We need to reflect on the brevity of our, days, of our days, and we need to live wisely. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. You, yes, establish the work of our hands. Man, there's so much here. Notice, please, in verse 12, Moses said to God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The most encouraging thing I learned from studying this psalm is this. When it comes to living wisely in the presence of God, don't miss this, I don't have to figure it out. I can go to God personally and say, Lord, teach me what is true. Remind me, teach me about my own fragility, teach me about your eternal power, teach me about your character, so that in view of who I am and in view of who you are, I may live whatever days you decide I have left wisely. Folks, that's the only way to live. See, what's happening on January 1st across America is millions of people, about 40% of Americans, are currently trying to figure out what they want 2017 to be. Right? We call those by a specific name. What do we call that effort? New Year's resolution. They're good. I've got a few. But if they're only my resolutions, if they don't accord to reality, if they are focused on this trivial culture, if there's nothing in them that will outlast me, they may be pleasurable, they may, may make my brief life slightly better, but they won't last for a moment. That's why Moses ends this psalm in verse 17 saying, establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In Hebrew, the root idea is make the work we're doing permanent. We're fragile. We're temporary. We're so mortal and weak. We don't have long to live, and the second half of our lives is difficult. Only you, God, with your steadfast love and mercy can show your power to us again and make the work of our fragile hands last forever. That's the opportunity that God gives you in Jesus Christ to make your life count, not only on this earth, but make it count forever. 
Are you interested in an earthly existence that reverberates in eternity? Can you tell me who the richest man was in 1972? And who won the Heisman that year? Can you tell me what the best movie was? Can you tell me who won the Nobel Prizes in, in science? That's shocking, isn't it? That was within almost all of our lifetimes, and nobody can remember. Even fewer people care. Only living wisely in the presence of God will make your life matter forever. If you felt the displeasure, the discipline of God this year, have great heart, have great hope. His love is steadfast, it endures forever. His mercies truly are new every morning because He didn't make you to punish you. He made you to love you and enjoy you so that you enjoy Him forever. What gets in the way is the trivial culture that bids you to spend your life on things that don't matter. Francis Chan said it well a few years ago. He said, our greatest fear should not be failure, but of succeeding at things in life that do not really matter. That's the temptation of 2017. Not of failing in anything you decide to do, but in giving yourself fully and having great success in things that won't outlast you. You have an eternal, beautiful an eternally important, beautiful opportunity. Nobody can tell you how long you'll have it, but you can say to God, God, in this new year that you've invited me into, I may have many years or I may just have a few days. I don't know, but teach me to live according to wisdom in view of how eternal you are and how fragile I am so that I may live wisely and so that the work of my hands will last forever. Here's a question for you to reflect on. What will you give yourself to this year that will last forever? May I suggest to you that some of those answers are found in the warmth of your family and your friends? If you only speak to them of trivial matters, if God never enters the picture, if the eternal perspective never dominates the conversation, you will live your life perhaps with pleasure, but all of those things will be gone the moment you are. If instead, with all of the sobering, serious, awful realities in Psalm 90, you consider your fragility and His eternality, and you say to Him, the one who made you to love you, to redeem you, who put Jesus on the cross so that you could enjoy Him forever, God, I'm only here for a brief time. Please teach me wisdom so that I can make it count. See, the kind of life I want to live for however long it is, because I'm keenly aware I may be your pastor, and I may be a father to Evan and Ryan and a husband to Sharice for a very long time or for not very long at all. Nobody knows and nobody can control it. And for anyone to say, ah, don't worry about it. You're... No, you don't know. I've stood over too many caskets to delude myself with the idea that anybody knows and can control it. Nobody knows. 
How do you live in a world like that? You say to the God who made you and loves you, who is deeply angry with sin, but so loving that He put His Son Jesus between you and His justice. God, since I'm like this and you're like that, teach me to live wisely so that every day counts. Wisdom is making every day count, not for yourself, but for God. And as a church, outside your family and friends where you can make an eternal difference, as a church, we've had a spectacular year. I'll tell you more about it the next time I preach. But we've made an eternal difference in this community, and we're making an eternal difference around the world. God is blessing the works of our hands, not because of ourselves, but because we've committed ourselves to kingdom values. And someday you'll see in heaven the difference that you've made. So don't live for trivialities. Say to God on the first day of the year, God, give me a heart of wisdom so that I will live for what matters and make every day count for you. Shall we talk to him together? Let's pray. Church can be so crowded with words sometimes. Can I just give you a minute to yourself, if you know the Lord, to talk to him about your life? Could I invite you to pray along with Moses? And take your short life, your fragility to him and say along with Moses, God, teach me to number the days I have left. Help me to consider the difference between us so that from this day forward, I can have more of your mercy and make the work of my hands count. Talk to him about it. Lord, none of us can stop time. It slips away in such a constant, measured way, but it feels like it's going ever faster. Thank you for living outside of it. Thank you for giving us perspective on time and life and eternity. And help us, Lord, be in touch with our fragility and rest, Lord, in your eternality, in your immortality, that you are life and you live forever. And in Christ, you bid all who trust you and love you and turn away from their sin, not only to live forever, but to make their lives count forever. Help us to be wise this year. Help us to spread this perspective of eternal importance into our family and friends and our loved ones everywhere and in this community that is so given to things that won't matter even a week after they happen, much less forever. Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain from you a heart of wisdom. Help us be wise with our money, with our, the brief time that we're given, with the gifts, Lord, that you've given us to bring glory to you and express love and service to others. We're stewards, Lord. We're managers of many things only for a short time. Give us wisdom to make it count forever. In Jesus' name.
Amen.